And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This is the word of the Lord. And then the gospel lesson in our sermon text uh, for today is uh, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Let me remind you, this is God's word to us, and it's given to us because he loves us. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the gospel of our Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray now that you bless the reading and the preaching of your word. We ask that you would open our eyes that we may see, and our ears that we may hear, and our hearts that we may understand, because... We need to hear your voice, because yours is the voice of love, and yours is the voice that we need to hear above all others, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So if you haven't been to a first century Jewish wedding feast recently, let me tell you what to expect. Jewish wedding feasts lasted in the ancient Near East an entire week, not just one day for a few hours, an entire week, and there would be, of course... Lots of family and guests in town, and many of them would be crashing at your place. There would be lots of singing and dancing and arguing and shouting and crying, just like at our weddings and uh, at many of our weddings. There would also be a lot of drinking, a lot of drinking to be done in a week's-long worth of a wedding feast. And at this particular wedding feast, the wine ran out. The one thing that people needed to have this feast is empty. The tap is dry, the keg has kicked. But Jesus is there, and so is Jesus' mother, Mary, and he makes her son aware of this glaring need. And at first, Jesus' response to his mother is 
Sort of what you might expect if Jesus would have shown up at your party last night. Jesus' mother says to him, son, the wine has run out, and it seems like uh, Jesus says, yeah, well, people are probably drinking too much anyway. That's a good thing. Boo. Boo. No good. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus' first public miracle at a wedding party is that there is an emptiness, and Jesus fills it. Jesus comes, and he fills the emptiness. If Christ is going to be our life, then we too are going to have to recognize that we are empty. Now, some of us look at our life and all we see is the emptiness. And we're afraid of it and we're often ashamed of it. And some of you are like me. We see the emptiness. We see what is lacking, but it's not quite as urgent as it should be. You know, that's something I can put off for another day. We'll deal with that later. And some of us think that we're already full. We're doing just fine. Thank you, Jesus. I actually don't need you right now. I'm good on my own. Now, of course, nobody ever would say that out loud, but functionally, practically, that's how you live your life on a daily basis. We are not full on our own. That is self-deception. Our hearts are broken and bent, and we look in life, look for life in all the wrong places. But the, neither is the emptiness all there is either. And the emptiness is not something that we necessarily need to be afraid of. Yes, we are all empty. The wine has indeed run out. But the good news is that Jesus is the generous king who shows up in the places of our emptiness that we are not able to fill ourselves. This is Jesus' first public miracle. There's an emptiness, and he fills it. And he doesn't just fill it a little bit. He fills it with an overabundance. These ceremonial jars, he has them fill up all the way to the very top. Amounts to about 180 gallons of wine. 180 gallons. That's like you go to the wine store this afternoon, and you walk out with 909 bottles of wine. That's what it would take to be 180 gallons, 909 bottles of wine. That's 76 cases of wine. Can you imagine? And this isn't store, grocery store, key food wine. Okay, this is the good stuff. The master of the feast, when he tastes this, looks at the bridegroom and says, dude, you don't know how to throw a party. You serve this stuff at the beginning, and when everybody's drunk and they don't care what the wine tastes like anymore, then you give them the bad stuff, and you've saved the very best for the end. What are you doing? We think that if Jesus were to show up at our party, he comes to kill it, right? If Jesus walks through the door, he's going to call the cops, and he's going to ruin all the fun, when it's quite the opposite. Jesus is there to get this party started. Jesus is there to bring us joy. It's not an accident that Jesus used these empty jars to provide 
180 gallons worth of wine. It's also not an accident that it was the best wine that any of them had ever tasted in their lives. Jesus is intentionally fulfilling Old Testament prophecy about what the Christ would do when he comes. What the, it's the thing that the people of God have been praying for for centuries for God to come and to bring them bread that would strengthen them and oil to make their faces shine and wine to make their hearts glad. This is what they've prayed for for years. See, Jesus doesn't just meet our basic need for forgiveness. He makes us glad, joyful. Anyone been struggling with joy the last two years? Is Jesus generous to us? Well, friends, the good news is Jesus is not just generous. He is the generous, lavish, abundant, overflowing, life of the party, giver of life. He is the one who says that even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I am going to be there to fill your cup. Not just a little bit, but to overflowing. But friends, Christ will never be our life as long as we think that Jesus is actually trying to kill our life. But friends, Jesus didn't come to take life from us. He came to give his very life to us. So recognize your emptiness, but don't be afraid of it. That's part of who you are too. Instead, open your heart and surrender yourself to God and to receiving His fullness, to receiving that Christ is our life. It's not surprising that one of the most prevalent illustrations that Jesus used in His ministry to describe to others what the kingdom of God was like was a wedding feast given his first public miracle. And if you know those, those parables he gives about wedding feasts, they weren't about how to throw a proper party. It was these weird illustrations about hospitality, about inviting people who weren't even supposed to be invited to the feast. Anyone and everyone should come if you've read through those. So as we close, looking at this first miracle of Jesus at the wedding feast in Cana, I want to challenge us with something. From the 2nd century through the 16th century, from northern Africa to what is now modern-day Iraq and India, all the way to Spain and Scotland, if a man, woman, or child had to make a journey, a trip, and given reminder that any travel during those centuries was a very precarious and dangerous proposition... As they traveled, they would be on the lookout for one thing. You know what that was? A church. They would be looking for a church. Sometimes it might be a cathedral. Sometimes it might be a small local church congregation. Oftentimes it was a monastery. But whatever the case, they knew that if they could find a church on their travels, they would be welcome, they would be sheltered, and they would be fed. In the 21st century, our neighbors continue to wander, but they are no longer looking for us. And just as true, we are too often not looking for them. 
Now, this is not something new. You've heard me say it. You've heard Chris say it. You've heard Matt say it before any of us. Is that the church in this century is going to have to recover its vocation of hospitality. If it's going to not just grow, but survive the secular age and the secular West that we find ourselves these days. And I would put before you that one of the reasons the church has lost its vocation of hospitality and therefore lost attraction to our neighbors is a certain type of mindset, a mindset of scarcity, a mindset that we never quite have enough, not enough safety and security, not quite enough affection and esteem, never quite enough power and control, and therefore we must wisely conserve this scarcity of resources, which often means I just don't have enough left over to welcome the stranger in our midst. And I'm not just talking about time or money, which it obviously includes those things. I mean other things as well. We don't ever have enough of our own values, our allegiances, our ideologies, our tribe. And our economics teach us that economics is about the management and distribution of a scarcity of limited resources to meet the demands of unlimited wants. In a nutshell, that's our economics. Well, friends, Jesus' economic policy has nothing to do with those economics. Nothing. You know how I know? 180 gallons of wine. 180. If Christ is your life, if this is what you say you believe, then you must let go of this mindset of scarcity. Because if you do not, well, for one, you're never going to have joy. Because nothing will ever be enough. You'll always have to constantly be striving for more. But secondly, you'll never be able to generously welcome the stranger. Your hospitality will always be limited to only those who can enhance your limited resources. And make no mistake... Our neighbors will continue to be indifferent to anything the church in the secular West has to offer. 180 gallons. Friends, Christ is our life. We have everything we could possibly want or need if we will only make it ours. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Let's respond to God's word by confessing our faith together using the words of the Apostles' Creed.